Today's scripture reading is taken from Hebrews 12, 18 to 29. I'll be reading from the ESV version. And you can find that for those of you that are here in person in our Pew Bibles on page 1009. Again, it's on one, page 1009. I'll give you a few moments to find it. <clears throat> okay, let's begin. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and the darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns us from heaven. At the time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates that the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been, been made, in order that things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. May God bless the reading of his words. Let's turn our time now over to Pastor Jeff as he leads, leads us in um, his message this morning. Just a couple of years ago, I was headed, I was driving to Pat's Peak up in New Hampshire for some nighttime snowboarding, skiing with some friends. And at the time, I was using my, my phone for directions. And maybe this is something that has happened to you before, right? So I, I searched for Pat's Peak because I've never been there before. And it found the mountain, but apparently it was the wrong mountain. It was the wrong address. I didn't know any better. And so I'm, I'm driving, right? And at, at some point... As I'm driving, the roads become a lot more narrower. It doesn't feel quite like the main road anymore. There's a lot more trees. Right? It actually kind of feels like I'm bushwhacking with my Prius. But clearly, as I'm, as I'm driving in this direction on, on my phone, I can see this dot, right, this destination. It's straight up ahead on this mountain, but I just can't seem to reach it. And meanwhile, my phone is buzzing because everyone's checking in, sending their messages. Hey, you know, we just arrived. And I'm thinking, arrived where? Because I'm looking around and thinking, you know, 
why does it look like this is the start of a horror movie? And then, at, you know, at some point it clicked, right, that I'm, this is not the right mountain. Now, I double-checked the address associated with this Pat's Peak, and yeah, not the right one. These directions are not going to get me to where I need to be. Has something happened like this to you before? You, know, you, you mix up one location with another. Maybe, uh, maybe you, you went to the right store or the right restaurant, but the wrong city or the wrong location. I share this story this morning because our, our passage is talking about two different mountains. And our author, uh, this author in Hebrews, is making the point that it matters. It matters that we know which mountain we're at. He's writing, as we've been kind of re- reiterating over these past few weeks, he's writing to encourage these early Christians to remain faithful, to persevere during a a time of stress, a time of hardship and challenges and difficulty, a time where their faith, the very things that they they hold on to as true, is being tested. And each week as we've been working our way through this sermon series, we've been connecting this idea of continuing this spiritual marathon of faith that we're in with the truth that Jesus is better. That he is a better redeemer, that he brings about a better redemption. And so there's these two mountains that get brought up in the beginning of our passage. And the point that is being made here is that that we have turned a page in salvation history. Now you might have heard me use this term salvation history before in maybe other messages earlier on. What I mean by that is it's getting at the story this narrative of God coming to save and redeem his people from sin. And that unfolds over time, unfolds over history, our history. And so it begins in Genesis, right, when man and woman, when when people were created in God's image to live on earth and to be his representatives. But what we find is, right, that they rejected God, they rebelled against him, they uh, fell under divine judgment, And sin came into the world. Brokenness came into the world. But God, in his grace, promised that he would bring about a deliverer, right, to save his people, to redeem his creation. And and we know, we know that that's Jesus. But Jesus doesn't show up in Genesis. He doesn't show up, at least in the person of Jesus, to much later on. But that, that doesn't mean that that nothing was happening, right, between Genesis and the Gospels. The idea of this salvation history is that it's this biblical narrative that unfolds with time, that God is working in and through human history to bring about his plan of salvation. And it's helpful for us as believers, Christians today in the 21st century, to to know where we're at in salvation history. Why? Because it it can serve as encouragement for us. This this is what the author of Hebrews is is kind of reminding these early Christians about as well. And so in verses 18 to 21, he's kind of saying to them this, that we are not at Mount Doom, right? Mount Doom, for some of you guys who know Lord of the Rings, it's the mountain in Mordor, right? And I use it this way because the imagery that gets presented in these first few verses reminds me of of Mount Doom. So 
especially if you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies. The fire, the doom and gloom, the intense mood music, the trumpets. Right? The, the author writes, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words may the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. That even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. What we're getting at here is this allusion to Mount Sinai. So this is the, the first mountain that gets kind of brought up in our passage this morning. It gets talked about. Mount Sinai, back in Exodus, God, is, God delivered his people Israel from slavery in Egypt. They journey, they arrive at this mountain where God will now tell them, you know, tell them what it means for them to be his people and for him to be their God, right? He's going to describe what this covenant relationship looks like now. But the problem was that that God is God. He's not like his people, right? He is holy, he is other, he is perfect, and his people simply can't just approach him. It's clear that there's this divide, spiritual and now even physical, back in Exodus, between God and his people, that that his people need a way to God, a way back to God. Now, a lot has happened since then, since the pages of Exodus, you know, like we said, we, we turned a page in salvation history. And so verse 18, our author in Hebrews is, is reminding these early Christians and us that you've not come to what may be touched. You are, figuratively speaking, not at Mount Sinai, not at this mountain. Why does this matter again, right? He's linking it back to, I think, last week's message and passage. In verse 12, these early Christians are exhorted, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that it was, what is lame may not be put out of a joint, but rather be healed. And so it, it continues to build this picture of a spiritual race that we talked about briefly last week. And over time, a race, running a race is tiring. Right, your, your hands start to droop, and you know, they don't have the same intentionality as you're, you're jumping and running and moving. They don't have the same purpose in movement as, uh, as before. It doesn't have the same pop. Right? Your, your knees weaken, your shins hurt, your feet get heavier and heavier. I think this is, to some extent, what spiritual fatigue looks like feels like. There's a lot more activation energy needed to to spend time with God. Spiritual movements in our lives are made with drooping hands. There's lack of purpose, intention. Rather, there's distraction in our minds wander. Maybe we don't even know why we're running at this point anymore, but we're just going through the movements. And yet there is this encouragement to these early Christians, to us today, to not grow weary. And encouragement to endure, 
to push on. And one of the reasons that we're given is to look at where we are, look at reality. We are not at Mount Sinai. And now, you know, let's be clear, this is not to say that Mount Sinai was bad, right? It's to say that we have been blessed. We are in an even better place in salvation history. And so where are we exactly? The passage continues, you have not come to Mount Sinai, but verses 22 to 24, you have come to Mount Zion, the second mountain that gets introduced here, and to the city of the living God and the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festival gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant into the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. We are in a better place in salvation history because we have this this access to God, right? This is one of the, the themes that have come up over the course of our time in Hebrews, this idea of distance, right, between us and God. We can boldly come before him, but maybe sometimes we're still acting as if we're at Mount Sinai, creating this distance between us and God. Now, the reason that we can come to him, not because we changed, we didn't suddenly solve the problem of sin and God's holiness by changing ourselves necessarily, becoming better people. It's not because God changed either. His character remains the same. The God of Mount Sinai is still the God of Mount Zion. But what's different here is Jesus, right? We're in a better place in salvation history because Jesus' blood speaks a better word. And so we're given this this tale of of two, two mountains, right? Mount Sinai, Mount Zion. Two different destinations, two different points in this unfolding of salvation history. Still the same God, though. God of Sinai, still the God of Zion. The God of the Old Covenant is still the God of the New Covenant. The God of the Old Testament is still the God, same God of the New Testament. His holiness, His voice, His tremendous presence, His glory and majesty, all still the same. But because salvation history has unfolded, a page has been turned, something has changed. Jesus has come. Our response is different. And so these two mountains being, I think, presented here for us, being contrasted here, kind of represent the old and the new covenants. And so we, we see in Scripture that God had made a covenant with his people, right? This, there, uh, he established this special relationship. With his people Israel. I will be your God. You will be my people. Moses said to Pharaoh, you know, let my people go so that they may worship me. Right? The first part was being freed from slavery in Egypt. And now they're going to come and worship him. And he's going to describe to him what that relationship looks like. How they they are to live as his people. How How they are to approach God. For them, but particularly in light of their sin and their brokenness. And we talked about that in past weeks, right? If you remember the, the image of the tabernacle, the, the tent, the holy of holies, 
and all the sacrifices that they, they needed to do. It was all temporary, right? Insufficient to decisively mend this broken relationship between God and his people. And to, to some extent, it was almost symbolic, right? Because it didn't do anything to change their hearts, their desires. They can go through the motions and offer these animal sacrifices, and it ritually cleansed them, but it didn't necessarily change, change what they desired deep down. Now, this, this Jesus, right, he's the mediator of this new covenant we have this comparison that gets presented for us uh, between his blood and the blood of Abel, which is a really interesting statement. And I, and I think we can read it to mean at least two different things. Right? So one, you know, we could be talking about Abel's animal sacrifice. That's something that was mentioned you know, a chapter or two ago. And so then we would say that Jesus' blood is better than the blood of Abel's sacrifice. Because if you remember in one of the earlier sermons, what we were talking about there was that the blood of Christ is this all-purpose stain remover. That it is better than the blood of goats and bulls. And we said in that message that his blood is, to some extent, kind of like a Clorox for our conscience. It's It's a cleansing agent that purifies our conscience from dead works. How? Right? Under the old covenant, these people, Israel, they knew where they stood with God. They knew the the seriousness of sin, how pervasive it was, that even after going through the Day of Atonement, they would still need another sacrifice as soon as that day was over. And so these are the, the dead works that the passage is referring to, that day by day, year after year, doing these same things over and over again, knowing at the end of it, you're still guilty. You're still in sin. And you're not completely right with God. Now, a- another possible way for us to read this blood of Abel phrase is, is that Jesus' blood is, is better than Abel's own blood that was shed when Cain killed him, Cain being his brother. And so Genesis, when God speaks to Cain after he killed his brother, and we remember Cain is like, you know, uh, am I my brother's keeper? God says that the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Abel's blood cries out for justice and retribution, for judgment and condemnation. But Jesus' blood that was shed speaks a better word. It speaks redemption. It speaks mercy and grace to sinners like you and I. It speaks of acceptance instead of rejection, blessing instead of cursing. Cursing, which we saw happen to Cain. Abel's blood cries out for judgment, and Christ's blood cries out for mercy and pardon on our behalf. And so, you know, whether we take, I think, Abel's blood to refer to his own blood or the animal sacrifice, the the main point that I, I think we want to see here, and I think the main point that the author is drawing for us, pointing us to, is that that Jesus' blood has made a way for us to God. And I think this is what is so great about, not just about where we are in salvation history, but what sets Christianity 
this relationship with God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, apart from every other religion, every other belief system, whether you uh, ascribe to a belief system or not, but I think all of us, we, we have some picture of God, or maybe we would ascribe some other label to that. And maybe we think of this mountain, and we might hear, you know, aren't all religions the same, or aren't all belief systems the same? You know, it's as if God, or whatever you would call God, is at the top of the mountain. And we're all at the bottom. All these faith systems, belief systems, worldviews, are all at the bottom, and you know, one system will take one path up, and another will take another path up. And we all have different ways to get up the mountain, right? To achieve you know, meaning, or significance, or purpose, whether we would call that God or, or not. And so we say, well, maybe we'll take one path up, and it's us trying to live a good life. Or maybe it's us trying to find meaning in helping others. Or maybe it's looking deep within ourselves for purpose and significance and direction. But ultimately, you know, we, we might hear people say that we all end up at the same place. And we see that even under the old covenant, God's own people are at the bottom of the mountain. And maybe a difference here is that they know they can't proceed up. They don't, they don't want to. They are fearful to because of God. But here, I think, is, is what is so special about our faith, our relationship with God. That because of Jesus, the God at the top didn't wait for us to find him and to make our way up to him. He came down the mountain to where we are in the person of Jesus. In the Bible, the gospel, the good news is the story of that. A unified story of salvation, of God coming down, making a way to him. And that way is through Jesus, only Jesus. And for us living on this side of salvation history, on this side of the cross, we've been blessed with a lot more clarity, a lot more revelation. Right? We know who the Messiah is. We have a name. His name is Jesus. Hope has a name and love has a name. And so the passage then continues for us. Verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. And so there is this call to hear him, to listen, to respond. And there's a warning too, uh, kind of a lesser to greater argument. I think what's being made here is that with great privilege comes great responsibility. It's not power we're talking about here, but it is privilege. And I think I use this word privilege, and I don't think Hebrews is talking about the same kind of social or economic privilege that gets mentioned these days, but a kind of spiritual privilege, perhaps, if you will, because we have come to Mount Zion. And that's to say that, that God has spoken by his son. This is how Hebrews started for us. Right? Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. 
And I think most of you know exactly what these six green blocks refer to on the PowerPoint. Part of this online game Wordle that I know some of you might have been playing, although I admit most of the people in my newsfeed that play it are all millennials. So it's just us in between, you know, Gen Z and those before us that are playing. So if you haven't played, it's okay. Basically, it's a word game, right? And you get six tries to guess a five-letter word. And with each try, you can see if any of the letters in your guess are also letters in the correct word. Maybe uh, you got the letter right, but in the wrong position. And so it'll show a different color to tell you that. Maybe you got the, the, the letter right in the right position, right? And I'll show a green block. And with this game, people like to share their results on social media to show, you know, how many tries it, it took uh, for them to, to get it right. And I think maybe that's part of the allure of the game because we like to have our bragging rights and, and all that. And these six green blocks are kind of showing to everyone that you, you got the five-letter word correct. Maybe in five tries or four tries or two tries. You know, each letter is correct and in the right position, thus forming the correct word. Now, there's different strategies, right, to getting to that right word. And one thing that often gets brought up when we're talking about this game Wordle is, you know, what is the first word that you're going to put down? You know, how, how nerdy do you want to be? Like, are, are we going to use information theory to solve this word problem? Will it be crane or sore? Or maybe we'll put down adieu because we want to, you know, cancel out all the vowels and make sure we, we know what vowels are being used. And so having a, a good starting word is, is hard, right? And getting the right word on the first try is near impossible, except by luck. But in Hebrews, kind of the reminder, going back to this passage, we're reminded that, that Jesus is better, that Jesus is our, our go-to word, that he is literally the word of God whose blood speaks and by whom God has spoken. He is our go-to word, the one that we always put down, and we always get those six green blocks. Amen? <laughs> and so there's this main command at the center of our passage. Right? See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. God is the one speaking here, but clearly we see in the prior verse that he is speaking through Jesus, the word. The word of God. Every page in this book of Hebrews, as we've been working our way through, has been screaming Jesus at us. And, and I think what's really interesting here is that this word refuse is the same word as beg in verse 19. And so there the, the Israelites begged. They begged that no further messages be spoken to them by the voice of God. They said to, to Moses, right, you speak to us and we will listen. But don't let God speak to us lest we die. The main difference, right, is that the, the Israelites didn't have Jesus. All they had was themselves and these insufficient animal sacrifices at Mount Sinai. Now they had the promise of a deliverer, the promise of a Messiah. But salvation history was still unfolding. Now Hebrews writes now to encourage us, you have come to Mount Zion. 
This is where you are. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, in whose sacrificial blood speaks a better word of grace and redemption. So do not refuse him who is speaking. Or perhaps, figuratively speaking, don't act as if you are at the wrong mountain. You know, the Israelites begged not to be spoken to by God. And admittedly, that was a different point in salvation history, but Jesus has come now. God has spoken decisively and clearly through Jesus. And, and what has been spoken to us is the gospel, the proclamation of this king, our king and his kingdom, the need for a redeemer, the message of grace and deliverance. Crossbridge, are you spiritually fatigued this morning? Are you running on empty? Maybe you're, you're looking for God to, to speak into your life because your faith is dwindling. Many of us perhaps have a, a lot going on. We might be growing weary in our walk with God. Or, or maybe for some of us, we have nothing going on. And that's what's getting us down with God. We are reminded this morning in our passage in Hebrews that it, it's not that God hasn't spoken. He has. But, but there's a question for us of whether we will lean into what he has to say, going back to the kind of the fundamentals of the gospel, of understanding ourselves in relation to God, of receiving this message of acceptance by God because of Jesus Christ. And having heard this message with great privilege comes great responsibility. Right? We have received a, a greater privilege, having come to Mount Zion, having received this revelation, but there's also now a greater responsibility for us to respond, to continue, to persevere. As the author of Hebrews does give us a warning that God will separate what lasts from what does not. That's to say that God will, will shake the heavens and the earth. That what cannot be shaken will then remain, and what is shaken, what is removed, will be revealed to be temporary and unsteady and insecure and imperfect. And, and kind of like this imagery of an earthquake, if you will. An earthquake kind of shows how strong a foundation you have. And I think to some extent this is what is going to happen when Christ returns. When that day of judgment does come, there will be a great shaking, a great rumbling. The very things that we hold on to that, that give us direction or meaning or significance, the very things that we turn to when we're feeling anxious or tired or weary, will they be revealed to be not as substantial, not as grounded or as strong as we thought they would. We've been given this kind of this main exhortation, this command, right smack dab in the middle of our passage. God has spoken through Jesus. Don't, don't 
don't refuse him. Hear his voice. Remember which mountain we're at. And the many blessings that come with that. Now what? You know, what is our response? And this is how uh, our passage ends for us this morning, verses 28 to 29. This third and last point is in sync with the third part of our Hebrew sermon series, right? Therefore, we talk about all this theology and uh, these, these beliefs and truths, and, and now how do we respond? Verse 28 to 29, Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And so there's two main ways that he encourages us to respond. First, right, let us be grateful. Let us be thankful. You know, I think it's, it's kind of helpful that he, he first mentions having this attitude, this posture of thanksgiving that then leads to worshiping God, right? That, that a heart of thanksgiving precedes a, a heart of worship. You know, otherwise, why would we desire to worship God if we're not thankful for him, for what he's done? And so there's, I think, a challenge for us today to, to think about our hearts. We're at. The very song, first song that we sang, right, was a heart of worship. But to also to have a, a heart of thanksgiving. And the reason for that, at least the one of the reasons laid out for us in Scripture this morning, is, is this un, having received this unshakable kingdom. That we are his people. We are loved by him. We are accepted, chosen by him. We are part of his kingdom. That is not, that won't be shaken. And then now being grateful, then he writes, let us then worship. Worship in a way that, that takes into God's holiness. That takes into account God's holiness. That, that demonstrates, right, the manner in which we, we worship is this reverence. This awe. Still acknowledging that the God of Mount Zion is the God of Mount Sinai, that he is judge of all. He is holy. He is God. That hasn't changed. But we need not necessarily fear and keep our distance because we have Jesus. So let's pray and worship him together. Heavenly Father, we we give thanks to you for you have spoken clearly to us. You have spoken by your son, Jesus. And in the cross, we see this message of redemption and grace and acceptance. God, I pray this morning for each and every one of our brothers and sisters in this room and those online listening and worshiping, that we would hear your voice speaking loudly and clearly into our hearts that we would not refuse or reject Jesus, but help us in our, in our walk, in our run with you, that we would not have weary knees, drooping hands, but give us passion for your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.